Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. That's right. I am back yet again. I am here with another episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast, the second edition this week. Just yesterday, I was here in the lion's den talking to Glenn Jacobs. We had a great time. Check that out. Be sure to find that over at lionsofliberty.com. It's Lions of Liberty podcast episode six. You can find all our old episodes at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast, or you can download us on iTunes, find us on Stitcher Radio. Now, my guest today, I'm bringing in here to talk about a very, an issue that's, you know, important to a lot of libertarians. It's probably what got a lot of libertarians into this movement in the first place, and that's the war on drugs, something a lot of people are very passionate about. To many people, it's a very obvious moral issue. Why should someone be put in a cage? And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about government laws. All laws involve, you know, the level of violence that the government is allowed to use on people for, you know, doing a certain act or putting a certain substance in their body in this case. And a lot of people simply see that as morally wrong. And we can apply that to anything. We can apply that to all issues. As a libertarian, you know, it's morally wrong to use force on anyone that hasn't aggressed upon you, that hasn't first used force upon you. But we can also use this issue to look at a greater economic picture. My guest today is an expert in Austrian economics, which is essentially free market economics. And if you want a primer on that, a great place to start is yesterday's podcast that I recorded with Glenn Jacobs. He has a really firm understanding on this issue. He's not a scholar per se, but he's really able to explain what Austrian economics is kind of in a man-of-the-street kind of way. So I definitely recommend going back and listening to yesterday's show, Episode 6, with Glenn Jacobs. But now I'm going to bring in my guest today. He is a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. He also serves as the book review editor of the quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics. Dr. Mark Thornton, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Mark, it's great to be with you and great to be on the show. Now, before I get into the topic at hand, the economics of the drug war, I ask this question of all my guests. You've been involved in the libertarian movement for a long time. What first sparked that interest? What got you involved in this libertarian stuff? Well, when I started studying politics and government and history, uh, there was no word for what I was. And I saw a Ned Clark uh, TV commercial in, in 1980 during the 1980 campaign, and I looked up and I saw this thing, and I said, that's what I am. You know, so I finally had a home, I finally had a word uh, for labeling who I was politically, and, uh, you know, and I'd always been interested in politics and the problems of government, and uh, I became an economics major in college, and then I found uh, both the Libertarian Party and Austrian economics uh, in my junior and senior years in college, and, um, you know, I wanted to study more of it, so I, I looked around for a free market economics department, and Auburn University was one of the best free market departments in the country at the time, offering graduate programs. And so I came here, and it was tough, but at the end of my first year, I was told that the Ludwig von Mises Institute was moving to Auburn and going to set up all these programs and, you know, help fund your graduate s- school and I was just, you know, thrilled. I knew, I knew who Ludwig von Mises was, uh, but I'd never heard of the group. And so I just got very lucky uh, to go where I went and to be where I was. 
And, uh, you know, I eventually got involved in the Libertarian Party and Libertarian Party politics. I ran for office a few times. I was the first elected Libertarian in the state of Alabama. But don't hold that against me, please. And, um, <laughs> you know, and I, so I've been involved with um, the Libertarian Party for a long time, and I've been involved with the uh, Ludwig von Mises Institute in various capacities, you know, for virtually the, their whole time of existence. And uh, now I work here uh, full-time as a senior fellow doing research and helping students um, and the general public figure out answers to economic questions. Now, what made you specifically begin to study the economic effects of drug prohibition and prohibition in general? What, what sparked your interest in that area? Well, my, my big interest in, in uh, economics was in the Austrian business cycle theory. But when I came to Auburn, uh, I quickly realized that while mainstream economists would put up with Austrians in the microeconomic level of economic analysis, they had no use for Austrian business cycle theory, and uh, it was persona non grata, so I dropped that as a topic of for my dissertation for research, um, and I had written a paper on, uh, on the drug war where I showed, in contrast to what my professor was saying in class, that, um, that the prohibition or the war on drugs would lead to a more potent product. And uh, the professor had claimed that that prohibition leads to a, a higher quality product, uh, but my analysis showed that it was a less quality and more potency is basically what you would get. And um, you know, my father and my father's side of my family were all pharmacists, and my mother, her side of the family, uh, were saloon keepers and liquor store owners. So I just figured that going into the economics of prohibition was kind of like going into the closest thing to going into the family business. <laughs> right, because you guys have been in the quote-unquote legal legal drug business for some time, so you've seen all of the effects of government regulation on that end already, and now you know it kind of makes sense for you to look at, hey, what about all those other drugs that people are, are still using despite government regulations and despite government prohibition? Yeah, I mean, I'd seen the legal end of it and how that worked, and everything, you know, seemed to be fine. Um, and but in the early 1980s, you got to remember the the war on drugs under the Reagan administration was heating up big time, and they were putting massive new uh, resources. They were including the military in the drug war. Uh, they were clamping down. They were, um, you know, uh, spying on people at, at a new levels. Uh, nothing like today, but I mean, it was a big deal back then. And so the war on drugs was a topic of, you know, great importance at the time. Uh, of course, the economy was also a big issue in, in, at the time as well, but, um, you know, it was a topic that everybody was interested in. And so I, I did a lot of research in that area. Uh, eventually, I wrote my dissertation on the economics of prohibition, and I got a book contract and, um, you know, started publishing academic. Uh, articles on the subject as well as popular articles on the subject and it was a lot of good positive feedback because I was um, adding a new element in, into the equation that it was government's prohibition that was actually what was making drugs more dangerous and you know I showed that if you go back in history prior to these prohibitions there was no social problem with these 
uh, drugs, uh, for example, with marijuana, there was no public uproar. There was no public call for making uh, marijuana illegal. And indeed, the legislation that was used to make it illegal was not a prohibition at all. It was just that the bureaucrats who were put in charge of marijuana regulation decided that they would go the full distance to outright prohibition. And uh, so I was adding new elements into the discussion and taking what was seen by almost everybody as uh, that there was a sure, solid uh, social case to be made for keeping marijuana and other drugs completely illegal and also devoting lots of resources to prohibiting them and imposing draconian uh, punishments on, on those who sold and consumed these products. And so my analysis, uh, you know, was adding uh, to the public debate. Um, and by the end of the by the end of the decade, uh, there were a lot of other people who were, you know, calling for the same thing, including a lot of conservatives like Milton Friedman and George Schultz, uh, eventually Pat Robertson, the, the Reverend Pat Robertson. Um, and of course, there were a lot of liberals who were supported that as well. So it was very interesting times. Um, and I was very happy to be able to, to add that element into the, into the public debate. And, uh, it did, I think, help turn people, uh, to questioning the war on drugs, especially against marijuana and public opinion has since been completely turned around so that now over the last few years, now a majority of people in the United States support legalizing marijuana. And we've seen uh, medical marijuana laws spread throughout the country. We've seen uh, legalization of marijuana in Washington, state of Washington, uh, state of Colorado, uh, virtual legalization in the state of California. Um, you know, and I said, you know, I wrote recently on Mises.org that, you know, that Obama was going after the people of Colorado and Washington, uh, just like he had been doing in California. And I said, in my article, I said that, you know, this Colorado and Washington were nullifying the U.S. marijuana laws, and they were also nullifying uh, the international treaties on uh, drug prohibition. So that was a big step. And I said, you know, if Obama goes in there and starts arresting people and bringing them to trial in the states of Colorado and Washington, that will turn to jury nullification to nullify those charges and that'll send a tremendous signal to Washington, D.C., that they, they are not all powerful, that they, they, they can't just dictate uh, every whim uh, to the American people. And I think it would set a tremendous precedent. But uh, fortunately, President Obama has so far backed down on his promise to, uh, to take charge of the war uh, against drugs in terms of marijuana in the state of uh, Colorado, in the state of Washington. Is that just another example of this this budding libertarian movement and the effect it's having kind of on the society as a whole? We saw the president have to back down from attacking Syria because there was so much public outcry. And now, I mean, at the, we're at a point where the public largely doesn't agree that marijuana should be illegal. So in the same time, I mean, the president may want to do certain things on marijuana, but, you know, because the public is so strongly against it, he, again, has to kind of back down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it... And um, so there's a lot of uh, gloom and doom out there about our government and about our debt and about uh, deficit spending and, you know, uh, runaway government in Washington, D.C. and spying and, and all that. But 
On the flip side, there's also a lot of positive things that are happening to everyday ordinary Americans where they're standing up and realizing that there's a tremendous problem in Washington, D.C. And what is that problem? The problem is government. It's not society. And it's a problem of runaway big government. And uh, they're starting to look for answers. And, you know, that's why they're increasing numbers coming to places like Mises.org and listening to shows such as yours, the alternative media, and they're getting a different message. They're getting the exact opposite message. The government is not here to save us and to cure us and to protect us, but government is here to tax us, to regulate us, and to harass us, and to spy on us. And so they're digging deeper, uh, learning more, um, and fortifying their ideology of liberty and libertarianism uh, with the science that's behind it, the science of free market economics and Austrian economics. Um, and uh, so they're creating a, a generation of, of what Americans used to be like, which were freedom-loving, uh, self-responsible agents um, and uh, for the social good. And so I think that that's um, the, the important message to say is that we're uh, we've got a lot of trouble. We've got a lot of problems in the in the economy. Uh, the Fed is is out of control. The government is out of control. The national debt is out of control. But one by one, uh, Americans are turning uh, from these problems to seek the solutions. And uh, with shows like yours and with Mises.org, and they're getting answers and they're finding out, you know, this really makes sense. That the gold standard is not some wacky old crotchety idea that the gold standard is actually, you know, proper money, sound money, m money that has a stable uh, market value, and uh, it, it prevents government from wasteful government spending and foreign adventures and, and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, once they get down into the nitty-gritty of the gold standard, and we get calls every day about that, you know, what about this, what about that in terms of the gold standard, and then you show them the, the graph of uh, things like the government deficit and uh, the uh, inflation in the economy. And it goes along, and everything is very stable until you hit 1971 when Nixon took us off the last vestige of the gold standard. And then from there, the deficits get bigger and bigger every year. And the national debt just skyrockets over that same period of time. And a lot of other economic indicators and statistics get, that were very, very stable over a long period of time all of a sudden become very erratic and go up and down with wide swings. And, you know, and then they realize, geez, there really is something here to this gold standard. It kept government in check. It kept my purchasing power of my money and my wages uh, not only in check, but actually your, your purchasing power under the gold standard, it actually you get a slight increase in your purchasing power over time so that your wages buy more over time um, and your savings buys more over time. And so the, you become, um, you know, you become wealthier as the economy gets stronger and gets bigger. Everyone, you know, joins in uh, with that increase in, in purchasing power and increase in wealth. Everybody's got savings because there's incentive to do so, unlike now where there's no incentive to save, basically. There's negative interest rates in the economy. Your money gets um, inflated away. And uh, so once people start building up savings and wealth, 
Well, if they do have personal problems, if they do have personal economic problems, they've already got savings to take care of those short-term problems and also building for their retirement. So you get a society that's not only where government's in check, but where people are much better off because they have a stable but slightly increasing purchasing power of their money, they have the incentive to save, and they can they can withstand uh, short-term economic problems, such as losing your job or company shut down or something like that. It's kind of a, a strange irony as the government gets worse in many ways, passes more draconian laws, um, the, the Federal Reserve money printing gets more out of control. It actually, in a way, gives us the opportunity to present all these ideas to a lot of people for the first time, a lot of ideas that might have seemed crazy when, hey, every, everything's going fine. Why, why do we need to listen to, to all this libertarian stuff? But now that certain things aren't necessarily going so fine and that stuff becomes more obvious, luckily people are becoming more open to these ideas. And thanks to the Internet and, like you said, Mises.org, thanks to us, people, all these people and all these voices out there, people are starting to take on a different view. And I think we also see it in what we're talking about here in the war on drugs. Now, for many libertarians, the war on drugs is what kind of brought them into the movement. I mean, people that just, from a very moral standpoint, say, look, if I'm not harming anybody else, why should why should I be put in jail? Why should somebody put be put behind bars for simply choosing to put a certain substance in their body? But I think examining the war on drugs from the way you do it also gives us the opportunity to, you know, it gives a really good example of how the mainstream approach to something to a problem. And I think a lot of people, even libertarians, would agree that, you know, drug abuse, drug use can be a problem, is a major problem. But how the approach to that problem is very different from the mainstream point of view as opposed to the Austrian economic or free market point of view. Can you give us kind of an overview on that? Well, certainly, um, you know. There, there's always problems of, of drug abuse and alcoholism and, uh, you know, problems such as that. But um, the normal everyday um, situation is not dire. It's not overly dangerous. You know, people, most drinkers, most smokers, most pot smokers are not major social problems. As a matter of fact, I just read a book that showed how that marijuana was actually much safer uh, for society as well as individuals um, than alcohol. That, you know, that alcohol, the legal product, is actually associated with a lot of violent behavior, whereas marijuana smoking, uh, you know, this, uh, po- this uh, uh, police officer would, was uh, asking the question of his fellow colleagues, you know, when was the last time you had a run-in with a citizen uh, where there was violence and alcohol use? And he, the, his... Uh, comrades would say you know yesterday last week but when asked when was the last time you had an encounter with citizens involving violence and marijuana no one has ever responded to him that, that <laughs> they've seen a problem with that yeah the marijuana you know, guy is just as he's on the couch he's not out causing trouble <laughs> yeah and the um you know and furthermore um one of the things that we've seen growing evidence over time of is that uh you know, not only is marijuana safer, but it has a whole lot of beneficial implications for society. The uh, medical version of marijuana has been found to be helpful or curative for a wide variety of medical problems. And so, uh, you know, why not take advantage of them? And the non-medical version of marijuana or hemp um, has a whole lot of economic implications in terms of the products 
that it can be used to produce. So as a raw material, it's very easy to grow. You don't, it doesn't involve a lot of chemicals and fertilizers and pesticides and things of that nature. And yet that raw material that comes from hemp can be used to produce hundreds of products. It can be used to produce food uh, in a variety of different ways. It can be used to produce um, textiles or fabrics in a wide variety of ways and rope and twine and, and, and string and all sorts of products that can be uh, that are very useful in society and it can be grown most places and it doesn't have a big chemical load on our farmland. So I, I even recall you know, from one of your speeches uh, on this subject that uh, wasn't the country essentially founded by hemp? Uh, didn't Christopher Columbus have a whole bunch of hemp on that ship for the way over here? Yes, it's it's a, it's a funny story to tell that you know it it took uh, Christopher Columbus used sixty tons of of hemp or marijuana to discover the new world and Thomas Jefferson wrote all the original drafts of the Declaration of Independence on hemp paper. Uh, George Washington was a big hemp farmer um, and used it to uh, for rope and twine and baling purposes and to produce clothing. Um, and, you know, so it, it, it's very much a part of the uh, early American experience. Of course, there was a lot of, you know, international trade and ships coming in. And so there was a, a big need for canvas for the sails, the ropes and all that stuff. So that seafaring hemp was uh, was very essential for seafaring. Um, it was also very essential for making paint uh, and things of that nature. So, um, you know, for the, uh, for hundreds of years, uh, hemp was a, it was a very, very important product. Um, it was the first European, uh, material for making paper. So that, uh, you know, Europeans b before that had to use, um, animal skins in order to write down things, or they had to import paper from other areas. But with hemp, they could make their own paper and produce their own books. And, uh, and so that was very important. The, the use of paper, uh, the ability to, to, to print things, was absolutely crucial uh, for information, uh, for sending information from point A to point B. Newspapers, uh, uh, financial documents, um, you know, this was kind of like a, a, a revolu knowledge revolution um, in the Middle Ages that carries over to the colonial period in the U.S. And, and hemp continued to be an important product in the U.S., um, you know, and so much so that the government subsidized it at various points in time to try to get more local hemp production. So that gives you some idea of what was going on. And so they very often states and, and localities and uh, would provide subsidies for the growing of hemp uh, because it was so important and so valuable, it was almost needed as part of the national defense, okay? The Navy was the key to national defense, and the Navy required all the sails and all the roping, uh, and all that had to be replaced every couple of years. So that hemp is, is this incredibly important product, and it is so up until it was made illegal in 1937 with the Marijuana Tax Act. Um, and, of course, uh, part of the rationale for prohibiting hemp, which has no THC, uh, the medical ingredient in it, 
uh, is probably generated from the chemical uh, uh, textile industry, which hemp was, uh, you know, the big leader in cotton and hemp were the big leaders. And uh, but as oil became important in the economy and it became important in the chemical industries and the artificial uh, materials, uh, a lot of people suspect that it was those interests which pushed through this very unusual piece of legislation in 1937 that nobody there was no social problem associated with either marijuana or hemp. There was no outcry. There was no public support. It was passed in a very um, uh, very unusual, under the cover sort of way, and uh, and so you, you, I think there is a a, tar- a darker tale to be told um, about this whole marijuana prohibition. I want to get into a few common objections that we often hear when you know advocating for the legalization of drugs. One of them is that you know. There's just going to be people using heroin everywhere, and, and you know, it's, it's just going to be crazy. But, you know, I, it, it makes me kind of think of one of the points you bring up. It's, it's the question of rules versus laws. Now, over at our house, my girlfriend and I, we don't allow smoking in the house. When our guests come over, uh, if they want to smoke a cigarette, they have to go outside. And they're my friends. The people I invite over, they abide by those rules. It, it takes no law to enforce that. No one's forcing the cigarettes on me. So it all works out fine. So can you go a little more into how, in a private society, drug use in many ways would, in fact, be regulated? It would just be done more through through rules, either in you know private establishments or the workplace, as opposed to laws, as opposed to you know throwing people in jail for merely possessing something. Well, as you suggest, Mark, private prohibitions work extremely well. Uh, And so, in in a sense, if you take away the government prohibition and you allow uh, marijuana to be legal, you actually have more regulation of it, but it's regulation in a more general sense, uh, in the old sense that uh, trade was well regulated by market. So, you know, if you go to into a store and it says, you know, no shoes, no shirt, no service, you know, they pretty much mean that. If you try to go in there, they've got a, a contract with an insurance company that says that they're not going to allow anybody with without shoes into their store. And so they enforce that. Um, you know, you couldn't just walk into any institution or any department store or any church and, and start smoking marijuana any more than you could smoking cigarettes. And so there would be this market regulation where you would uh, only actually have a license to, uh, a license in a general sense to smoke marijuana on your own property, and you'd have to be given permission to do it anywhere else. And, uh, And so, you know, you couldn't just smoke marijuana at work. You know, Lou Rockwell doesn't allow me to smoke cigarettes. He's sure as heck not going to allow me to, uh, smoke marijuana in in the Mises Institute. It's just what a curmudgeon. I mean, come on, loosen up, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, and then the workplace. Um, and so you know, employers have the right to say, you know, you can't smoke pot, you can't show up drunk. You, there's all sorts of things that you can't do. Um, and marijuana would be be thrown into that mixture. And then you know, the marketplace itself also has um, ways of restricting bad behavior. Uh, it's well known through scientific studies that uh, uh, people who are drug addicts uh, or alcoholics don't do well in the marketplace in terms of labor. They get uh, fewer raises, uh, fewer um, uh, 
better jobs uh, in, in the economy. They get uh, fewer promotions within their firms, uh, and so they don't do as well economically and sometimes get fired as a result of it. So there's market regulation everywhere in the economy, it's, it's, but it's hard to you know, show people every last detail as to how that regulation goes into effect. But at the, with, with respect to high, um, more dangerous drugs like heroin and cocaine, you know, if we legalize them, well, would those actually be sold uh, commercially? Well, probably so. But they sure, you know, Walmart's not going to go into the cocaine business or the heroin <laughs> business and start, you know, handing it out to minor children because because uh, there's going to be public outcry. You know, people are going to be outraged. They're not going to want their kids, you know, seeing cocaine in, in Walmart, and they're going to lose business. Yeah, or even if they did that, they certainly wouldn't give it to kids because think of the liability. Right. Uh, the liability for a, a, an overdose uh, would be would be significant, and if it was a child where you're not allowed to make legally binding contracts with, uh, the, the uh, legal liability would just be enormous and would swamp the situation and absolutely prevent um, you know, the marketplace from just willy-nilly letting these things out. Um, you know, corporations have to protect their image. They have to protect their corporate uh, capital value. And so they try to avoid lawsuits, and they try to avoid damaging their image at every possible turn. And that's what I would expect to happen uh, when these drugs are legalized, is that there's going to be heavy market regulation of these products. It's not going to be willy-nilly. Anybody can get their hands on it, uh, you, know, they're, it's, you know, selling it in schools and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think you're actually going to see a much better situation where products are safer um, and they're um and you're given plenty of information about it you know in today's marketplace where illegal drugs and even legal drugs like oxycotton and uh and things like that uh there's no information about them and so a lot of people are dying from legal and illegal drugs because the lack of information about them to uh illegal users is quite limited and as a result they make simple stupid mistakes and it causes people to have overdoses or to die from these products and so i think the marketplace is going to clean that up um, and make it a much safer environment for everyone another a common objection we often hear is that you now people might even concede okay you know I, I don't mind if someone just uses drugs themselves but what about you know what about all these other problems associated with drugs what about when a, a guy that gets you know gets drunk and beats his wife or a guy that gets high and goes on maybe a guy does meth and goes on a killing spree you know this is a distinction you make between associations and causations and and there's a very big difference there and it's something that people often kind of get confused on could you clarify that a little bit? Yeah, well, bad people do bad things, and, and you know, very often the, those bad people are also uh, using bad drugs. And, uh, and so, you know, but the issues have to be, remain separated. Um, it's not usually, the you can say, cut and dry, that the drugs are actually caused. I mean, the drugs are not causing these problems. The people are causing these problems. They may exacerbate a problem, you know, if, if a violent, crazy person gets drunk or uses meth or something, maybe they will, you know, still be a violent, crazy person with a little more, you know, gusto to them or what have you. Well, and but, you know, you think of it, the big problem we have nowadays is doctors prescribing 
psychoactive drugs to people for which they were never tested on. I mean, the ages uh, of people that they were never tested on. And so we're, we're the, you know, the government is granting licenses and where doctors are giving uh, drugs to people who probably shouldn't be having them. And those are the ones that are, you know, that are guilty of all these multiple murders. And so that's one of the things, you know, as just a person, as a citizen, I'm very concerned about that they're writing all these millions and millions of, of prescriptions for psychoactive drugs um, rather than trying to actually deal specifically with the, the personal problems that are involved. Um, that's a big problem. Uh, you know, marijuana is not the big problem. Uh, things like uh, synthetic opiates and things like uh, meth, meth uh, those never existed in the marketplace. Those were brought into the black marketplace because of how difficult it was to get other um, uh, products that were safer and more natural and and things of this nature. It was only government's prohibitions and the you know the enforcement and the penalties that have caused people to make meth at the, at the local level um, or to invent synthetic opiates that temporarily avoid the prohibition because they're they're technically not yet entered into the legal database of illegal drugs. So it's the government prohibition that's driving this front edge of more dangerous and more potent products. And if you wipe the prohibition away, you know, you will eliminate the incentive to create those kind of things and uh, eliminate the, uh, the wrong-headed incentives that naturally occur in black markets. Dr. Thornton, I know you're a busy guy, but have have you ever seen the show Breaking Bad? I'm curious. You know, I waited until it was over, and I I've started watching it. And I've watched uh, three episodes now, and uh, it's everything that uh, people said it was. And um, you know, I'm, I'm I, I got endorsements from a wide variety of of people and so I started watching it after it was over with so I could run through the whole uh, however many seasons there are and I just saw this endorsement that by Anthony Hopkins who I consider one of the greatest most profound actors of our generation and he thought uh, he did the same thing he waited um, uh, until the final season to start watching it and then he just sat down and watched the entire thing for over a three-week period and he wrote the lead actor and said that um, that he was more impressed with his work on this series than anything he had ever seen in his life. So, you know, it is. It's it's great, and it's um, it's obviously the whole premise of the show is uh, is based on prohibition. And I think the the literature, um, the fictional literature that is is spinning off of. Um, these pro these prohibitions i think is is uh is significant uh because it's it's obviously something the american people are uh interested in and they think that it's important and that they can relate to the to the material that they're seeing whether it's breaking bad or whether it's the great gatsby and and things of that nature yeah and not only is breaking bad a great show and, it, and it's great that these kind of issues are being brought into pop culture more. But, you know, one of the biggest things that I think that show, that specific show demonstrates about drug prohibition is 
how in the black market it, it kind of removes the the, norm, the normal private property right relationships that people have, and that those private property rights get replaced by violence because without, you know, when you're operating outside of the market, when you have to operate in the black market, you don't have those normal kind of relationships between people and it's replaced by this violence. And we certainly see a lot of that in the show. Can you explain that a little bit more to people, how violence kind of takes the place of, you know, property rights? Yeah. I mean, um, when something is prohibited, uh, you can't go to the government and say, you know, this person's doing me wrong or this person's, you know, cheating uh, the customer or whatever it happens to be. And so because private property rights don't exist in illegal marketplaces, then violence uh, basically fills that void. So in the marketplace, defending your sales territory is doing a good job with your customers, keeping your prices low, keeping your products of high quality. In the black market, defending your turf is getting a machine gun out and uh, you know, going uh, to the next dealer over who's supposedly on your territory and trying to mow them down with a machine gun. And, of course, innocent people being killed uh, in the process. And that's what we see in, Amer- in, in American streets today. And that Chicago. goes back to the, the how people associate all this violence with the drug use. But, again, it's not... It's not the drug use that causes this violence. It's the it goes back to that prohibition. That prohibition pushes everyone from a normal, you know, say a court system to resolve disputes, and pushes them with the only you know method left is pure violence. I mean, you don't see the CEOs of uh, Rite Aid and uh, you know Walmart putting hits on each other to to defend their their market. That's right. And um, although if you look at the Great Gatsby, there's actually a little bit of that back then. Um, because Walgreens could sell legal alcohol. It was kind of like a, a legal... Uh, yeah, you could get a, you get a little change. prescription kind of thing. Yeah, you can get a little prescription. But, you know, otherwise, in the black market, you know, if you're carrying $10,000 of heroin from point A to point B, or if you're um, carrying $10,000 in cash from point B to point A, uh, and everybody knows it, uh, you're going to want to carry a gun to defend yourself against other drug dealers and against people who are going to try to steal your drugs. People are going to try to steal your cash. Um, and, you know, you can't rely on the government there. You've got to rely on self-defense. And as a consequence, the whole business is um, very militarized, and uh, they're defending themselves against other dealers. They're defending themselves against uh, burglary, robbery. They're defending themselves against the government law enforcement as well. So it becomes a, you know, an ever escalating system of violence. And, you know, if you look at the Mexican border where a lot of the drugs from South America uh, enter into the United States, um, and so it's kind of like a distribution uh, network that, that exists along the U.S.-Mexican border, well, the whole area has become militarized and very violent, and thousands of people have been innocent people have been killed um, and the drug dealers have you know wiped out entire police departments um, they've threatened and killed local government officials um, and they've bribed the rest of them and the consequence is a completely um, breakdown in society there and Hillary Clinton when she was uh, uh, Secretary of State was asked isn't the only solution to this problem that we legalize drugs 
so that the violence goes away. And her response to this was kind of funny. She said, no, there's too much money in it. And, uh, you know, that she was sort of innocently speaking that the truth there. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, but, you know, if you go down and look at the, look up the Mexican border on Google and you'll see all the, uh, the tremendous amount of violence that is associated with that entry point from all of the South American supply markets into the United States. A lot of it comes through that border. And, uh, and so you get to see um, close up what the war on drugs has actually done to not just our society, but the supply side of, uh, of the drug market, which is violence, murder, death, corruption, intimidation, breakdown of government, breakdown of society, uh, people fleeing for their lives, basically, on mass. Another great show, another favorite of mine that I know a lot of my listeners out there are fans of as well is the show The Wire. And, you know, one thing that you really take from that show um, is that almost all of the actual drug dealers, the, the people actually handing the drugs off, are kids, are 10, 12, you know, 14-year-old kids. Can you explain just how the, the drug laws push, you know, push youth into the drug field and into this violent arena? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really sad implication of the war on drugs is that the penalties for adults are, are very severe. Uh, but the penalties for dealing drugs for those who are 17 and below are much less. Uh, and, you know, these youngsters, they probably don't even know that, but, um, but the oldsters certainly do know that. And so they rely on young people, young boys, to make these small transactions so that the, the real dealer is not in harm's way in the sense that they're going to get arrested by the cops. Now, the penalties for children are much less, but they still end up going to jail in many cases. And in the United States, we send more of our children into prisons, in jails, than any other country on earth. As a matter of fact, we send five times more of our children as a percentage than the next highest incarceration rate in other countries. So we have this huge juvenile prison population and they don't stay in there for long necessarily so that the amount of juveniles that go to prisons is uh, outrageously high. And what we found statistically is that this incarceration uh, results in a greatly diminished high school graduation rate, and it, it's, it also results in a great increase in future incarceration. So these kids who go to jail uh, don't end up graduating from high school on a much higher amount, and uh, they most of them end up resorting to crime later in their lives, and they end up back in prison. So it's, a, it's definitely not the way to go. But the prohibition laws are, is what is encouraging much of that. Yeah, it's sad. I mean, you don't see you know many kids that get arrested and, and wind up in juvie a couple of times. Most of those guys don't go on to become you know the leading CEOs or or anything like that in the world. They usually end up on that you know stuck, kind of stuck in this glut where they keep they end up in jail and that ends up becoming all they know is this criminal life that you know is only a criminal life because the government made it so. Dr. Thornton, I really appreciate you joining me here today. Where can uh, where can people out there find your work on this subject and also just your work in general? Social you find you on social media and everything else you're doing. Yeah, um, Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org is the world's 
largest and most trafficked uh, economic web pages in the world, and it brings you the world of the Austrian school. It just edges uh, out lionsofliberty.com, I believe. It, it's, a, it's a tight race. <laughs> well, you guys are up there. Um, and, We're trying. Uh, I know you are, and I can I can tell that. And uh, but we also have a Facebook page, and we're on social media. You can follow at Mises M I S E S, uh, and I'm on Twitter at Dr. Mark Thornton. And so please do contact us. Please come to Mises.org and review the materials. Uh, search for your favorite subjects. Uh, sign up and subscribe for our daily articles. They're very concise examinations of timely topics and we have a new feature uh, Mises View which is on the front page and it's a three to five minute video commentary on what's going on today so we've had several up about the uh, shutdown of the government and the debt ceiling lately Dr. Mark Thornton, thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, you know, you're an expert not just on this one topic but on, on many other economic topics too so we'll definitely look to have you back again in the future it was my pleasure, and I look to forward to being back on the show. Great. Thanks a lot. And we will be back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. <laughs> you're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks, Glenn. That's right. That's my boy, Glenn Jacobs. Episode 6 that we just recorded yesterday. Check him out. And, you know, guys, I gotta admit, I am just podcasted out. I've had two days of podcasting, had a great interview with Glenn Jacobs yesterday. Awesome discussion with Dr. Mark Thornton today. Hey, fans of Breaking Bad, fans of The Wire, they're two of the best shows of all time. But we can learn some lessons from them, too. We can learn some economic lessons. And I'm so happy to have had Mark Thornton on here today to really explain in real detail a lot of the unintended consequences of drug prohibition. You know, drug prohibition doesn't just stop people from using drugs. It doesn't stop anybody from using drugs. It really just creates economic conditions that inspire violence, that send youth to jail, that increase the potency, the danger of drugs. Whereas if we just allow the market to work and we just allow people to put whatever substances in their body that they choose, the market will find ways to regulate and regulate where that drug use takes place and result in a lot less violence and, you know, a lot less throwing people in a cage. You know, that's what we got to think about with every law. You're talking about taking away someone's life, someone's freedom, and putting them in a cage. Now, before I go, I got to tell you guys about this contest. You should already know about it if you're loyal listeners and you listened to Glenn Jacobs' interview yesterday, but I know you guys are busy, so I'm going to give you guys a little more time to enter. We're giving away, Matt Blankenship is giving away a free copy of his book, Meet Ron Paul. You can check it out at meetronpaul.com. It's a Ron Paul biography for youth. We're hoping to get it into a lot of schools, libraries, that kind of thing. Help expose, you know, expose young kids to the ideas of liberty. If you want to get a free copy of that book, 
you can enter this contest by sending me an email to mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. You can email me either a question for one of my upcoming guests. I've got Chris Rossini next week, columnist at EPJ, at Ron Paul Institute, and at lionsofliberty.com. Also, the week after that, Halloween week, we'll have Walter Block, well-known Austrian economist, anarcho-capitalist. If you want to send a question along for either of them, you can do that. Or you can sign up for our weekly digest, the upper right-hand corner of our site, over at lionsofliberty.com. Every Friday, you'll get a little present from us, an email in your inbox with all of our articles from the week. I know you guys are busy. We're all busy. This way, you don't need to keep checking back. You'll get them all delivered right to your inbox. You can forward me that confirmation. That's another way to enter the contest. Guys, hey, if you're only one or two of you enter, there's a pretty good chance you'll get the book. If more of you enter, you know how this works. So take two seconds, drop me an email, and maybe get yourself a free copy of Meet Ron Paul. Guys, thank you so much. Thanks again to Dr. Mark Thornton. Thanks to all you guys for tuning in. Don't forget to check us out on the social media, the Facebooks, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty, the Twitter, at Lions of Liberty. And don't forget to check out my man who wrote this tune that's bringing you out of the show, Rob Branch. You can check out his work at drawingforliberty.com. Until next week, remember guys, live long and live free.